You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have you been thinking about LASIK but not sure if you're a candidate? Just go to LASIK.com slash quiz and take our free candidacy quiz. In just a few minutes, you'll know if LASIK is likely right for you. And if it is, we'll connect you with experienced LASIK doctors in your area. Start your journey towards 2020 vision. Take our free candidacy quiz at LASIK.com slash quiz. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Homes.com knows having the right agent can make or break your home search. That's why they provide home shoppers with an agent directory that gives you a detailed look at each agent's experience, like the number of closed sales in a specific neighborhood, average price range, and more. It lets you easily connect with all the agents in the area you're searching so you can find the right agent with the right experience and ultimately the right home for you. Homes.com. We've done your homework. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. For some people, destiny arrives early, hands them a map, and clears a path toward the future. For others, destiny shows up later, while they're still kicking around in the woods. My guests today, Dick Cavett and Kristen Wiig, took two very different journeys, but both ended up right where they were meant to be. As a little boy, Dick Cavett loved to talk. A month ago on this table, when I was going through old envelopes of stuff, I found three report cards. Dick must learn to control his talking (laughs) is on two of them. Dick must learn to let others talk occasionally, one of the wittier ones uh, put down. And when his family finally got a television, he fell in love with that too. It was only a matter of time before Cavett would combine the two with a talk show that generated some of the medium's greatest moments. How come you didn't kiss me then when you came out if I'm so... Well, let's see, this is the third show. Hmm? By the fifth show, we'll give each other a hell of a kiss when I come out. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> but let's say you happened to meet my first guest, Kristen Wiig, when she was in college. If you brought up the idea of her acting, let alone being on Saturday Night Live, she'd probably stare at you, blankly. Yet Lorne Michaels has called Wig one of the best performers in SNL history. She has changed the conversation about women in comedy, so it's hard to believe Wig's career almost didn't happen. I was an art major. It wasn't really for me. I was kind of in my, uh, I hate the word party phase. I hate that word. I was having fun, I yeah. guess, at that time. Yeah. And I, um, taking it easy. I was taking it easy. And yeah. then I, I didn't really know what I, I was having, like, what am I going to do with my life? You're in your ring-a-ding-ding phase. <laughs> I've never used that term, <clears throat> but I'm yeah. going to. And then I went back to Rochester because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And then I just started, like, taking classes at the local community college. And then For I was what? like, I want to travel. Art, right. art classes. And there's no performance element in no. what you're doing oh, all this God, time. Oh, God, no. no. And no, were no, people no. saying to you, God, you're funny? I, I don't think people wake up when they're 25 I and they're funny. You know what? I never really did plays. I mean, if I had to give a speech in class, I would try anything to get out of it. 
I hated talking in front of people. I still actually don't really like doing that. If I'm myself and it's a group of people, it still makes me nervous. Anyway, after I was back in Rochester, I did a Knoll semester. Do you know what that is? It's like outward bound where you like live outside and learn. Is to, it like meaningful or is it ring-a-ding-ding? No, it's is, meaningful. It is. Yeah. It's, people are like it's camping. soul searching. They're yes. soul searching. Oh, yes, of course. They're, For three months. They're not six-pack searching. There was a little bit of that. So it's, a, it's called a what? Knowles, National Outdoor Leadership School. <laughs> You're laughing at me. It's like Outward Bound. Outdoor Leadership. I like yeah, that. Yeah, it was outdoor. like you learn how to live outside. and like Just if in case you're, of the apocalypse. Yeah, and if you get lost in the woods, like I would know what to do. And if I was with you, I right. would bring up this conversation and say you're on your own. <laughs> yeah, you go get lost in the woods. I'm going to be in the hotel watching Bridesmaids on pay-per-view. Anyway, Knowles. long story short, after that, went back to Rochester and then applied to the University of Arizona. Went there for a year. Why there? Um... It was a boyfriend thing. Okay. And then— So you're a pretty normal kid up until now. Pretty normal, yeah. And then? Then I took an acting class. Where? At University of Arizona. You did. My major was studio art, and you could pick three different types of art for that major. And it was like sculpture, painting, and I just tried this class called performance art, which was very like— Writing poems and doing kind of— Finley. Yes, like very weird light changes and things like that. It was literally acting 101. That was one class. One class. And I was terrified to take it because I, like I said, I hate standing up in front of people and performing. But something about this class, we learned about improv, and my teacher was really supportive. And at the end of the class, he was just like, have you ever considered doing this? And I was like, no, yeah, right. So it was your teacher that planned it? It was my teacher, yeah. I just kept thinking about it, and I wasn't really happy there I didn't really like the the art program wasn't really for me. I don't want to say I had an epiphany, but I did have one of those moments where I was like looking at myself in the mirror and I was like, what are you doing? What do you want to do? If you could do anything in this world, what would it be? And I was like, I want to move to L.A. and try to be an actor, (laughs) which was crazy, but I didn't stop myself. I packed my car like the next day and my roommate at the time in Arizona lived in Beverly Hills, and she said I could come stay with her. So it all started flowing in that direction. Yeah, I didn't tell my parents that I was leaving you Arizona. You kept sending letters to the post office <laughs> I in, 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 in I was, Tucson? And I just kept saying, God, it's really hot here. Oh, there's yeah. so much sand everywhere. <laughs> but they're postmarked West Hollywood. <laughs> yes, exactly. West Hollywood, Arizona. Um, <laughs> and when you got there, how quickly did you get into the Groundlings thing? Not quickly, because I moved there, and I was you like, I need to get You kind of move at a glacial pace, don't you? You were kind of creeping up on this, weren't you? <laughs> I got there, and I was like, what it's am I— It's a slow I... motion epiphany. <laughs> yeah, it was an epiph. <laughs> I got there, and I was like, what am I doing? Because L.A. is a city of actors and performers and writers and filmmakers for the most part. I mean, that's where they all go, and I had zero experience. I wasn't— you know, 19, and I just, like, got a job and, like, wasn't really doing anything. Got a job doing what? I worked at anthropology. Did you? The store, yeah. You sold clothes in anthropology? Yeah, and I did, like— Or were you security? I wasn't security. <laughs> no, but I did a lot of, like, visual stuff because of my art background. I helped with, like, the, you know— Displays. Displays and stuff. But when you say you, you weren't sure what you were doing, there's something about you in the time I've known you and been around you where you're still kind of that way. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to figure it out. (laughs) Right. I don't know. Do you ever? I don't know. 
I mean, I think that there's two types of people in the business that I've met. There's the ones that have that very Mickey Rooney kind of, I'm going to be in show business, you know, since they're kids and they just want yeah. it and they eat, sleep, and drink it. Then there's people who are, if not accidental, they certainly have a sense that they're visiting. Well, I'll do this for now, you know. Yeah. I love performing, but there's such a big part of me that's like, don't look at me. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's hard to find that balance. I think also, like, people assume if you're an actor that you just, like, walk into a room and you're like, hello, listen to this story. I want everyone to gather around. Attention, everyone. Yeah, Attention. and I'm the, the exact opposite. Yeah. If I'm in a room full of people and someone says, like, hey, Kristen, what happened at that thing? I'll just be like, oh, I'll start sweating. <laughs> Isn't your dream going to dinner <laughs> and someone else does all the talking? Yeah, that's why I like going to dinner with you. That's my <laughs> But so when you're there and you get into the Groundlings. Yeah. Groundlings opened everything up. Now, how so? Because for you, you're thinking acting, and it was a performing art class. You said, I'm going to go to L.A. to be an actress. And do you feel that you crossed a line and it was, I'm a comedian or I'm a comedy actress? Or you never felt that way? No, I think it it was improv. It was watching people be on stage acting without a script there was something in me that was like, I, I want to do that. I know that I can do that. For some reason, it was less scary to me than having words in front of me. Because I think when you're handed a script, you know that you're supposed to do it in a certain way, and people will think, like, how is she reading this? But when you're improvising, there's nothing to compare it to, and you can yeah, do there's whatever. There's no Blanche Dupois. Yeah, no. But when I started taking classes at the Groundlings and taking improv, it was like, Something just, like, clicked, and I felt like, oh, this is what I want to do. And But at the same time, did you get a sense of what you're doing? It was working. You were pretty good at it. Um, I mean, yeah, I think so. I mean, it's weird you, to sit, talk about myself like that. Recently, or, <laughs> but you were good. No, I mean, I, it was something—it was nice to have that thing that I knew that I was good at, finally. Besides art, which is very personal and quiet and— you know, that was just sort of something I did by myself. <laughs> you don't talk to anybody when you're drawing or painting. It's very um, isolating. And for me, doing the Groundlings was the exact opposite of that because it's such a community and you are you improvise with other people and you have to connect with other people to make it work. Do you have to audition to get in? It's like a school I mean, you have to go and take take the first class, and then after the first class, your teacher tells you if you can move on or if you should repeat it or if this isn't for you. (laughs) And then you just keep going, and then that's, like, where I learned how to write was at the Groundlings. And the Groundlings was how long? Probably, like, four or five years, I guess. a few years. Yeah. I mean, there's time in between some of the levels because there's such a long waiting list. And then once I got into the main company, I was only in it for a handful of months before I got SNL. Now, when SNL comes knocking uh, for those— I mean, Well, we knocked. <laughs> I don't know if they knocked. What do you mean? <laughs> well, we sent it. I, my manager sent a tape in. So you had an agent and a manager. I had— You were playing the whole thing out there. I had a manager. Were you working? I'd done a few pilots, right. I guess, and a few commercials— um, so you weren't cloistered over there in the Groundlings. You were you were working. I was, yeah. I mean, I still was had odd jobs. And when you connected with the, the SNL people, you sent material to them. Naomi sent a tape in, and then your manager. Yes, sorry, my manager Naomi Odenkirk, who's I wouldn't have any of 
my career if it wasn't for her. I used to babysit for her. Did you? And then I asked her to come see my Groundling show, and she was like, okay. Okay. Um, but she just kind of sent my tape in, and then, you know, you don't hear anything, and then you just get a call. We'd like her to audition this summer. Five characters, three impressions, five minutes. And I was like, okay, uh, I don't really have any impressions. So I'm going to have to like, I'd never done impressions on stage at the Groundlings. It was just kind of like joking around with my friends. Flew out there. It was the most terrifying experience. Who were you doing it for? I don't even remember, like a sea of darkness. I don't even, I just remember Lauren was there there and, and Seth and Marcy. Tina, you know. Did you know any of them prior to that? Had you been friends with Tina or Seth? I hadn't met any. No. No. I went to New York once when I was in eighth grade and, like, went to. To go to um, court. (laughs) (laughs) To, like, Hard Rock Cafe or something when I was in, like, eighth grade. No, I came to New York and I was like, what? I bought a stopwatch because I really thought they were going to just turn the lights off at five minutes. Because <laughs> they said, like, it's five minutes. It's five minutes. Please don't go no over. Kidding. So I was like— We're going to electrocute you. Yeah, so I, I practiced in wires. the mirror <laughs> with, like, a stopwatch trying to get it under five minutes, exactly five minutes. And I don't do stand-up, so the idea of performing by myself— and how did it go? I felt okay. I felt pretty good. Yeah. They laughed a little bit. I was warned, you know, like, it's going to be quiet. Tough just crowd. do it. It's a tough crowd. Just do it and go. If anything, I just felt happy that I did it because I was yeah. so terrified and shaking. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. And then it was over. <laughs> I didn't hear anything. And I was like, okay, well, that was an experience. <laughs> and then, like, a month and a half later, we got a call saying, can she come back? You know, and if she has new stuff or other stuff, that would be great, too. And I was like, I crammed everything I've ever done in that five minutes. But then I just I came up with some new stuff, went back and did it again. Then they asked me to stay and meet with Lorne. I don't remember what I said. I, Do you have kind of an Alzheimer's problem? No. Because you don't remember a lot? You don't remember I don't remember because I was—I was—I was, I do have a horrible <laughs> memory. memory. But also I was so nervous and probably didn't say much anyway. And then he was like, you know, well, we don't really have room for you right now, but, you know, your audition was great. I mean, he was so sweet. And I was like, okay. <laughs> and then I left. And they said they didn't have room I for was so cast. confused. And then I went home, and then the season started. <laughs> and I remember watching the first show and being like, well, I didn't get it. And then after the fourth show, we got a call saying, can she come? So then I started, like, fifth show in, I started, which was even more nerve-wracking because you feel like— And where like, were you? You were in L.A. I was in L.A. And they call you and they say, get out here. Yeah. Had you watched the show prior to that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially high school, I remember it was like people would watch it and then what talk about it. What you remember of high school. Yeah, I don't really yeah, remember. I don't remember. <laughs> so you, you, you had an awareness of the show and you were a fan of the show. So when they called you and asked you to come, you felt other than um, nervous? Other than nervous, I—, I Oh God, I don't know if there was even much more than nervous. I was. But were you happy? I was so happy. I was like, this is too good to be true. And in my mind, I'm thinking, I'm moving to New York City. Where do I live? What if I get there and none of my stuff works? You know, but it's kind of getting SNL is a huge, it's a, it's huge, a huge deal. Thing. I mean, I jumped up and down. I was, I couldn't believe it. And I think the difference with SNL is if I had gotten my big break, whatever you want to call it, if it was a pilot or a TV show got picked up or a movie, you kind of know what to expect. 
and with SNL, you have no yeah. idea. The script hasn't been written yet. It hasn't been written. Like, what am I gonna do on the show? Right. How how does it's live? It's an hour and a half. Discovering what to do on SNL wouldn't be a problem for Kristen Wiig. She went on to create some of the most memorable characters the show has ever seen. My next film is Tim Burton's adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. Or what I like to call it, Alice in Wonder, if someone put LSD in my crystal light. What is happening in this thing? She inhabited her SNL creations with the fierce commitment of a veteran film actor. It's no wonder her transition into movies was so smooth. Well, you're getting married. I'm getting married. And you'll be my maid of honor. God, of course. Of course I will. We're super fun. It's going to be really fun. How would Aunt Linda review Bridesmaids? What would Aunt Linda say? She'd probably be like, there's too many women in it. (laughs) Coming up, we'll talk with Kristen about SNL and Bridesmaids, which she starred in and co-wrote, earning her an Oscar nomination for Best Screenplay. Later, I'll be visiting Dick Cavett at his home for a conversation about, among other things... What makes a good conversation? My advice to you would be continue in what you're doing and don't change anything. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com. One place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. 
don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. It's Saturday Night Live! For the past seven years, Kristen Wiig has consistently made me laugh until tears stream down my face. Before SNL, she did a lot of things. She was a caterer, a waiter, the lady who gave out peach samples at a farmer's market. She painted retail window displays, and she answered phones at a law firm that lasted a day. Kristen Wiig! But Kristen and Saturday Night Live, that was a match made to last. Until this past May, when Wig left the show. Her characters, often exercises in juxtaposition, will be sorely missed. The repulsively friendly target cashier. Let's see. Sunscreen, nose plugs. I wear nose plugs around the house when my neighbor cooks broccoli. The queen of one-upsmanship. What was your name? Penelope. The pathologically nervous travel expert. I'm not nervous. I just changed my mind about doing this. Just kidding. I didn't change my mind. I changed my clothes. Just kidding. My clothes didn't change, but my address did. I now live at 21 Jump Street. Just kidding. I live at Jumpy 1-2 Street. Just kidding. I didn't move, but I can move my body. Look. Just kidding. One of the greatest gifts from SNL is getting out of my comfort zone. I realized, I think Lauren realized, probably the first handful of years that I was there, most of my characters were... Ladies in their 40s with, like, short hair and yeah. weird sweaters yeah. that nobody yeah. Barbara wanted. Bush. No one wanted at the right. dinner party. Yeah. And the good thing about SNL for me creatively is to think, okay, I'm comfortable enough. I really want to try something that's not, some, you know, something that I normally do. And that's when I actually first came up with the character um, Shanna. One time, I ate a bunch of peanuts, and I had a pain near my belly button. So the doctor told me he needed a stool sample, and I had to poop in the tiniest, cutest little white cup. The one that's, like, sexy, but then does, like, gross things. Because I was like, I really want to write a character that looks kind of good, but blank. And that's kind of where the flirting lady came from, too. I was like, I just want to try... You know, I didn't really know what that was going to be. I mean, none of it was really on the page when we wrote it. But for you, do you feel like when there's a quotient of a character, which is a sensuous quotient, and you're sending it up, do you realize you could walk out the door tomorrow and probably play that character for real in a straight film? I mean, have you ever wanted to do play a leading lady in a dramatic film, a love story, oh, yeah. a period film. I would love to do that. Straight films. Yes. I hope I hope I get the opportunity to do that. I was just actually talking to someone about this the other day, that the audience very quickly puts you in a folder. Like, they know you how they first knew you. I'm Kristen from SNL, or a comedic actress, and... People are always so surprised when I want to do dramatic stuff. Really? Yeah. Like, you really want to do that? Have you had any offers for that? Um, I mean, there's a couple things that I'm looking at doing next that aren't comedies at all. Right. One of them is really not at all. Right. And I, it's I a horror hope movie. <laughs> it's a horror movie. I just want to be in, like, a tub. Will you do a horror—do you ever want to do a horror movie with me? Let's—are you kidding me? Like a yes? paranormal Blair Witch <laughs> thing, which is completely loosey-goosey, just cameras everywhere, and we improv. We could shoot it in here. We could shoot it in here. Yeah. We're on the radio, and then we just hear voices. There's like a dead announcer who's in here and locks us in here. Yeah. 
you know. But let's talk about that later on. <laughs> okay, I love that. Let's get Judd out the Someone's got to be listening Let's to this. somebody it's really good. With a typewriter. <laughs> Not a computer. <laughs> no. A typewriter. No. We're old school. Yeah. <laughs> so you wrote Bridesmaids, as everybody knows. Yes. Everybody Co- knows. I co-wrote it. Co-wrote. Co- okay, yes. were you with... Uh, Annie, Mama. I don't know Annie, but I know you. And there really is something in this business when you see somebody who is as lovely as you are and as pleasant as you are and as talented as you are and kind of unassuming. I mean, you're not a very self-important, you know, artist in this business. And then all of a sudden you go, whoa! You know, <laughs> you make a movie that's just this huge success. When you look back on it now, what do you think? When we were making the movie, it was like, we wrote this thing, we hope it works. Whose idea was it? Everyone's having fun, what's going to happen? The the original, just the idea of the story was Annie's. Mm-hmm. Judd asked me to write something for myself after I did Knocked Up, and he's like, you can write by yourself, you can have a writing partner. Most of the sketches that I wrote at Groundlings with someone else were with Annie, so I just called her, and we'd kind of talk loosely, like, hey, someday we should maybe write a movie, but that's so daunting. We, I, I don't know how to write I like what you said in the interview. You said, let's write 20 sketches, <laughs> yeah. sketches we can do. Yeah, and then just like kind of put them together. <laughs> so she had this idea, and I was in New York, and so she actually went to Judd's office and, you know, was like, hi, I'm Annie. This is our idea. <laughs> And um, he's like, okay, yeah, start writing it. So every hiatus, I would come to L.A. We discovered Skype later, but we like to do everything together. We're not one of those teams that just says, like, hey, write this and send it to me. We like to do everything together. So you wrote this for Judd? Yeah. And then what happened? And then— How much notes did you get from somebody else? Or was it all like it was there? We were writing every day on set, writing— Alt lines, writing new jokes. Yeah. We would have (laughs) scenes written. He'd be like, okay, write this scene again, but maybe this happens. Or how about instead of these two characters, maybe it's the other two girls that are there. So it was constant writing, rewriting. Every day we would get a packet of scenes from old drafts, scenes that we loved, scenes that, you know, other people's ideas. Scenes that we refused to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a lot of writing. A lot of writing. And in terms of the casting, it looks to me like you got everybody you wanted, true? Yeah. One of the reasons why Annie and I wanted to write this movie was that we know so many funny women from the Groundlings and, you know, women— Which of those were in the film? uh, Wendy and Melissa. And Maya's a former Groundling. Um, Ellie and Rose were the only ones that I didn't— no, before. And talk about Rose Byrne, who I saw her at the SAG Awards. And, of course, she looks um, – yeah, I saw her at the SAG Awards. And she definitely is dear in the headlights when you meet her. She's very sweet. But she is divine, and she's so game. Do you find that all you need to be is a good actor to get the comedy thing? Or do you think there's something special to comedy? To play Well, I think not- you just said – I mean, to be game, you have to be willing to not look good, to put it out there – Poke fun at yourself. Yeah. And and Rose is like, she has no improv experience, and she improvised like crazy in this movie. I don't know. I think she's, um, she's, she's unbelievable. To play that cotillion kind of broad, it's it, it, we've seen that I mean, yeah. a lot, in a lot of manifestations. But you got to stay with it. You know, you got to never comment on it. And that's what I love. Was she was like, it, it was acting. Yeah. She's like playing this really a uh, stick up her. You know what? Yeah. And Annie and I have always said the Helen character that she played it was the toughest to figure out because she's this person that 
my character instantly hates, but my best friend is very close with her. So right. you have to see what sure. she sees in her, too. So Rose was that perfect thing of like, oh, God, she, she's driving me crazy, but, oh, I kind of want to hang out with her. Yeah. And she did that. Women are like that. Well, not like a, like all a, women. <laughs> like if men are friends and then you have a friend I can't stand, but with men they understand, just don't bring just, him around. Yeah, right. <laughs> but with women it's like, you know, you know come on. Yeah, bring her over. Lori's not so bad. Yeah, and then she comes over and you're like, hi. (laughs) Talk about Melissa. Melissa at the Groundlings was a little ahead of me. From the moment I met her, I I just was like looked up to her and had never seen anyone in my life not only embrace characters like she does but creates them. The stuff that she's done at the Groundlings is – insane like shows sold out when she's you know doing her stuff when she came in to audition for this it was absolutely perfect there's something very maternal about melissa which was very important in that character and also she's just can i swear on the show um think of a metaphor (laughs) okay she's effing brilliant can i just say that we're like so lucky that she's in the movie yeah what are you doing next have you got any movies in the can? I have one movie that's in the can right now called Imogene. I'm a writer in New York. My relationship has just ended. Without giving too much away, people think that I tried to kill myself. And Is it a drama? It's it's a drama with comedy in it. Right. And then I I'm have to be released to a family member when I'm in the hospital because they don't have enough room in the hospital. And so I have to go home to my mom, who Annette Benning plays. I haven't seen her or talked to her in you know, eight, ten years. So it's sort of going back home, finding out what's important, that whole kind of thing. This is a trite question, but I often think about this myself. Being older than you and coming from a different generation, when I would come in and I would meet people that were not peers of mine, but people that I really admired. But I didn't always work with people that were, you know, on Turner Classic Movies, so to speak. I wasn't making movies with John Garfield, you know. (laughs) But the uh, um, and William Holden, but when I would meet these people that I deeply admired, it was just such a, an amazingly resonating experience. And on SNL, you got a different person every week, yeah. presumably. Yeah. Who are some of the ones that are most memorable to you that you work with that you were like, I can't believe I'm standing here doing my thing with blank. Well, SNL side, Annette Bening on this movie, I completely had that with her. Right. I couldn't believe I was doing scenes with her and she was playing my mother. I mean, I can't even. She's very gifted. Yeah. Um, oh, my God, SNL is like every week. Yeah, There's different. but can you think of even one or two that you just went, holy. You. Beep. No, no, come on. Well, a little bit. True. Um, Steve Martin. Yeah. When I first met him, I was like, oh, my gosh, I've I've watched you and. Worshipped you. Yeah, for most of my life. <laughs> and uh, that was pretty crazy. And De Niro, when he. <laughs> Posted was when he wanders in. Went, it was uh, yeah, it was amazing. Plus, you know what it is, because you meet people, you go out to parties, whatever, and you meet people. But when people come to SNL, you're seeing such a different side to them because they're not in their element. Some of the more dramatic actors don't have comedy experience, so it's interesting to see people not in their element come on the show and be sort of like, "Tell me what to do."
Kristen's final Saturday Night Live show was an emotional one. Each cast member, one at a time, danced with Kristen. Wig said she would miss SNL in many ways. It's a two-parter. The people, I'm going to miss seeing all those faces every day. And what the people bring out in me. That creative muscle that you have when you're at SNL, you know, it's so fast-paced. You're putting a puzzle together, and it has to be put together by Saturday at 11.30. And being surrounded by creative people and knowing that you're all in it together and you're putting on a show, pushing this huge boulder together. Every Saturday you do something that you're scared to do. I will miss that feeling. And, of course, you have absolutely no prospects whatsoever. I mean, you're really, it's a really ballsy move on your part because who the F is going to hire you? I don't know. I may go back to <laughs> open up a canoe shop. <laughs> is the goal for you films and it's less kind of factory work like TV can be? Yeah, I mean, temporarily. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't like the word goal because I feel like those are always changing for me. You don't like having goals. I don't like having goals. I don't. That's why I, <laughs> you know, do what I do. Yeah. I don't know. I want to direct. I want to live in Paris and paint. I want to do, like, I don't know. I want to do a lot of different things. Seriously? Yeah. You think you live in Paris? Yeah. And do yeah. what? I don't know. You'd Eat last bread in Paris for about two that months. Is not true. Well, maybe, but You'd then I'd live in Paris for two months. How no, no, great would that be? There you go. You and I are going to have dinner yeah. when we talk about <laughs> the haunted studio movie <laughs> that John Hapital is going to give us notes on. We'll get together. Also, we'll have another lunch, a separate okay. lunch, to talk about healthy goal making. Okay. Uh, healthy, uh, right. You no, know. what I mean, it's not that I don't <laughs> think you should have goals. Let me go back. What I'm saying is, my life right now is not what I thought it would be. Six months ago. It's always people like you that so end up like, on top. But you never know what's going to happen. I, it's so day-to-day, and I, I don't know. I I just, I don't know. But I love that you're so blithe about it, but in a healthy way, where you're like, you know, I'm going to leave myself, because that's artistry to me. No, I never want to stop doing creative things, whatever they may be. It's all going well. I can't complain. I'm very happy. As she should be. Kristen Wiig is preparing to star in upcoming films directed by Sean Penn, Ben Stiller, and Errol Morris. And if things go the way one would suspect, she'll continue to delight us for as long as my next guest has. The Dick Cavett Show! Over the course of nearly five decades in television, Dick Cavett has perfected the art of the great interview. The Dick Cavett Show debuted in 1968. Here was a small-town Nebraska boy with a Yale education, cultured yet unintimidating, thoughtful, honestly curious, and funny. He had a knack for gently driving the conversation to the heart of the matter while keeping his guests relaxed. May I call you Orson again? Oh, my goodness. Wouldn't it be ridiculous if you didn't? Cavett's show could book the brightest and often the most reclusive celebrities of that time. Catherine Hepburn, John and Yoko, Groucho Marx, Orson Welles, Truman Capote. Eventually, Cavett himself was as admired as his guests. Robert Mitchell. If one more person had told me how many times you've terrified interviewers, I wouldn't have been able to do this. I don't feel that I terrify interviewers. They... More or less terrify me. Debbie Reynolds. You know what I'm asking you. It's not rude in Hollywood to ask. It's, it's really it's all right. No, you can ask me anything. No, no. I mean, I mean, I know Those that also, most of the people have their. Just my hair comes off, but ha- my teeth don't come out. 
I visited Cavett at his house in Montauk, a place called Tick Hall. I've known Cavett for several years as a neighbor out on Long Island. Tick Hall sits atop a remote cliff overlooking the Atlantic. The views are spectacular. Hi, Riley. Cavett's lived here since the 1960s. For our listeners, Here comes that us. sound you're hearing is the rattle of the iced tea being delivered into By the parlor here. Very attractive employee. Yes, yeah. for this gorgeous That's actually his wife, Martha. His first wife, Carrie Nye, died in 2006. Eddie and Puffy Morgan. <laughs> Cavett got his start in show business writing for the greats of early television. Jack Parr, Merv Griffin, and Johnny Carson. After a few years of this, he decided to start writing for himself, but first, he had to figure out who he was. And there's a breakthrough point I had when I got what you might call a premise, and I just refound, thank God, a lost letter from Groucho saying, um, I saw you on the Merv Griffin show the other night and got that old feeling. Seriously, he may have said. I think you've struck a mother load with your idea of being the Nebraska yokel at Yale. And that Is that was, the card you played? Well, yes. I started thinking what, you know, always you hear writers must write what they know. Well, what's my life? What do I know? I don't have an unusual large nose. I don't have funny. I'm not short and fat. I can't play off that. I can't. Uh, but I did come from the Midwest and go to the Ivy League. Totally contrasting worlds. There was no Ivy League in your family? None. What'd your dad do? All three of my parents, I also had a stepmother, uh, were teachers. And uh, my dad taught high school. And um, and as he always reminded me when I was going to spend some money on something, your mother and I, in the Depression, had to decide whether to spend a dime on a loaf of bread or if we could go to a movie with it. Right. <laughs> I can't believe that, but it's That's of a depression narrow. That was my dad. Yeah. Right. Uh, I've been to, every time I go to Comstock, I try to picture where my dad maybe lived and taught. And, uh, but he was rewarded with $900 a year. Now, what, what was your relationship to conversation? Meaning, have you always been the conversationalist back home in... Nebraska, and then when you went to Yale, and a month ago on this table, and I was going through old envelopes of stuff, I found three. What do you call them? Report cards from third, fourth, and fifth grade. Miss Gabus, Miss Fuchs, and uh, Mrs. Graham. And all three of them said, "One might imagine how far Dick would get if he'd stop talking in class." You've hit it. Dick must learn to control his talking. <laughs> is on two of them. And Dick must learn to let others talk occasionally, one of the wittier ones uh, put down. But you were always someone who, it was a gift you had. Apparently, yeah. And um, Did you go to Yale uh, undergrad? You did graduate school as well? No. Uh, undergrad only. Sometimes I'm referred to as a drama school graduate. You uh, weren't. I wasn't. I took three courses in the drama school while I was an undergraduate. Directing. Miss Welch's speech class, stage speaking, it's theory and practice, and uh, a theater history class taught by a humorless German, if that isn't too redundant. You mentioned his name when I saw him. What was his name? Alois Nagler. Alois Nagler. He was kind of good. He looked like Rex Harrison, but spoke like Himmler. 
What was my other favorite name you told me the other day? Ola? Oh, Orson Welles. Beautiful, <laughs> beautiful girlfriend I met in the, right in that part of the plaza lobby that Cary Grant pauses at in the beginning of North by Northwest and Essential. And he said, Dick, this is my lady friend Oya Palancash. Oya Palancash. Oya Palancash. Palancash. And I thought, I'm going to remember that name yes. as long as I'm I can. I'm going to Google it as soon as I get yeah. home. God, I'd love to know the details of his life in all those years when he'd make a film, not quite finish it, move on, uh, live off some countess somewhere, and then his next address would be in Spain, and the next one would be in Dunkirk. And God, what a life. Mad, strange, wasted gigantic amount of talent. Now, obviously not totally wasted because he did a lot of films, but uh, in a doctor's office, I picked up a national, a new republic. And it was an article that began, someday theater historians will have to deal with the problem of what Marlon Brando and Orson Welles did to their bodies. And he parallels their two careers, the wastedness the bad choices, yeah, early the contempt genius. for the business sure. that they love to express. When I was going to do a television show, I was 10 years too old for the part. I was 40, and they wanted me to do Brick and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. You were 10 years too... Too old. Too I was old. 40, and Brick should be you know, hovering around yeah. 30, late 20s. So they wanted me to um, do this uh, for CBS and have Brando play Big Daddy. So sure. I contacted him, and he says, when would you like to get together? I said... I'd like to get together with you this week, quite frankly, because I'm leaving for Africa. And he said, sure, come over to the house on Thursday at 1 o'clock. I went to his house. 12,500 Mulholland Drive. I went to Mulholland Drive, yeah, and had lunch with him for nearly four hours at his house. Talk about people who talk. And he talked about his weight gain and his physical problems. He talked about it like it was an airbag, like it just, Mm -hmm. like one day. And it wasn't until he was morbidly obese did he say... Mm-hmm. Well, maybe I'm not doing so well. But when you did the show with him, because yeah. I watched so many of your shows... He wasn't very terribly fat then. He had a gut. Yeah, he was a little blocky, but the funny thing about him is there's later Brando, you know, the very end, and there's him with uh, Larry King, and he's very playful and he's very childlike. Mm-hmm. But with you when he was on, he seemed very feral on the show. Was he that way off camera? He seemed like he was going to throw a punch any minute now. I know, and, and, and the, alternating with... That million-dollar grin that my director admitted he couldn't cut away from to do a reaction shot. He was so hypnotized by that fabulous grin of his. Uh, But he seemed angry. Other people said the show seemed like pulling teeth and what did he bring the dreary Indians on for and all this stuff. It was a very difficult evening, and if I had it to do again, I didn't resist him any except at one point well, I got a laugh that he didn't get until he heard the audience laugh, I th- it looks like, when I've seen it back, which was, wh- what about the success of the movie The Godfather? And, and he said, uh, I won't talk about movies. And the audience laughed. Cause that's one thing he would talk to a big movie star about. And, so, and then he grinned. He gave through that anomalous grin, like I know what this must mean to you. So then I said, how about the book, The Godfather? <laughs> and he, he knew to laugh at that point. And the other one was his belittling, iced tea rattling, belittling of the 
of the art of acting. And now, you know, anybody can do it, you know. Once he said to me, you know, you, your mom said, who peed on the toilet seat? And you say, I didn't do it. And you, you're acting then. Yeah. You know. yeah. I come into his house and he says, he says, and we're sitting there and I'm completely uh, numb. Yeah, he comes in in a moo. At first you are. He comes in in a moo and we're in his house. It's a very hallucinatory moment for me. He looks at me and says, uh, you and I are like two dogs sniffing each other right now. And he says, I'd like to make an arrangement with you, an agreement with you, where you say whatever you want to say and ask me whatever you want to ask me and I'll say whatever I want to say and I'll ask you whatever I want to ask you and we'll just talk about whatever we want to talk about and it'll make us feel comfortable. That is, that is so him. But I know what you mean when you first met him. If you can stop the voice in your head saying, Jesus Christ, this is Marlon Brando that I'm sitting with and he's so aware of that. My first talk with him was on the phone where we are now, in fact. He called, I was told he would at a certain time, and we talked with the sun about 15 degrees above the horizon until well after the moon had risen. <laughs> Coming up after a break, more with TV legend Dick Cavett, a man who knows exactly what to do when an interview guest is truly awful. Be sure you have Mel Brooks sitting there. I'm Alec Baldwin, and here's the thing. Take a listen to our archive, more unexpected conversations with artists, writers, policymakers, and performers. Why if I throw up on this table? No, Is that a problem? Musicians, we expect strange behavior from musicians. <laughs> yeah. How long does this go on, by the way? Listen to as much as you like at heresthething.org. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K LASIK.com Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Good sleep should come naturally, and with the new Natural Hybrid Mattress, it can. A collaboration between award-winning mattress brand Lisa and home design favorite West Elm, the Natural Hybrid is the culmination of these two companies' shared values. Premium materials, meticulous craftsmanship, and sustainable practices. Made with natural latex, responsibly sourced natural wool, and environmentally safe foams, the Natural Hybrid elevates your sleep sanctuary. Indulge 
indulges your senses and supports a greener tomorrow. Plus, when you purchase the natural hybrid, you're also helping fuel Lisa's work with shelters and those in need. Since 2015, Lisa has donated more than 40,000 mattresses to ensure children and families have a safe place to sleep. Don't put off a good night's sleep any longer. Get a Lisa mattress today for a sound sleep tonight. Visit lisa.com slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash iHeart. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. He's a television legend, but Dick Cavett's also acted in movies and on Broadway, hosted a radio show, and written several books. His latest is a memoir called Talk Show. Cavett's recollections of specific episodes and guests are incredibly candid and clear, as if they happened yesterday. The bad, the good was, of course, always welcome. And I had no reason to think that James Mason would be the first person I ever had on a show, on my daytime show, who was so enchantingly charming talking, without any sense of putting on the charm, that I missed all signals to go to commercial. <laughs> and it was the first time that I broke through reading my notes off to the guest, barely able to hear what they were saying for reasons of nerves and signals that I just missed over their shoulder. And, oh, my God, someone lettered a card and took it back. And, oh, God, the guest's lips have stopped moving. Um, Do you have any hobbies? (laughs) (laughs) The disappointing guests were writers. Now, I loved having writers on. I did... a boy's dream, some boy's dreams, Updike and Cheever on the same show, Cheever separately, Updike separately, Saul Bellow. I had them, started to say I had them all. But who didn't cut it as a talk show guest? But the thing was that, the, yeah, you couldn't believe that this semi-articulate person having trouble with vocabulary, seemingly, and just outlandish, unbelievable thing, had written that glorious prize-winning prose that you read. Now, the exceptions were, of course, many. Truman Capote, questionably accurate but entertaining guest at all times. You had Olivier on the show, correct? Yes. It was a 90-minute show in London. And then I did him again in New York um, in the Wyndham Hotel with, uh, with Lady Olivier, Joan Plowright. So I got two with Olivier. Um, How was that? Well, it, it was it was fine. Uh, he what, what was so interesting, it's an interesting about word. Him, was it fine? What do you mean? It was the opposite of bad. <laughs> I think was what I was trying. <laughs> you can't pick on a guy's choice of words. <laughs> I swore to God recently that I would never say the word awesome in my life. Sure. And if we could only make that true of everyone in the world that would be swell it can go along with iconic and um, closure and like of course and a few others amazing we all are saying amazing all the time now I got five amazings in watching morning television for about 40 minutes the other day amazing guest amazing guest we have it's an amazing script it's just amazing I was amazed by it your career amazes me yeah, but Olivier was terrific and he was such a clown afterward not on the air he could have done so more on the air and it would have been wonderful I think I was probably a little too in awe I didn't say awesome 
to get all the fun out of him that I later learned is in there. Who were the people today that you sit there and say, God, if I was doing it now, that seemed like it could be fun? I almost wish you hadn't asked me that well. because uh, here's how that thought occurred to me. I was on a radio show plugging the book. Of, I think it was Mark Simone. And he said, "This you must get Cabot's DVDs. Uh, there's one called Hollywood Greats. And, and, and may, he may have said, tell us who's on it. And I thought, what a dirty trick. I, you know, I won't be able to think of two of them now. But I had it sitting there on my messy table. And here's who's on it. It has all of Catherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Fred Astaire, Kirk Douglas, Lucille Ball, Frank Capra. No Coward. Uh, coward isn't on that one, damn it. Uh, that needs a separate one, too. Robert Mitchum, Orson Welles, John Huston, and Marlon Brando. And I looked at this. Did I mention Lucille Ball? And... Uh, I thought two things. Um, A, am I the only one in this cover of this box who's alive? No, Kirk Douglas is. But what I really thought was, who are their counterparts now? What list of today's greats would include that many redwoods? Even in politics. Politics, writing, is there anybody, authors? No, I think we live in an age of increasing mediocrity. So you don't sit there and say, I would love to have had Richard Holbrook on, I'd love to have... Uh, oh, there are, some, there are plenty of people. Yeah, yeah. God, yes. Meryl Streep belongs on anybody's list of greats. You know, and, 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 and. But I don't think quite so many achieve... Maybe you can't be big in the way those people were, these giant people yeah. who are... Do they grow redwoods anymore? Yeah. Do they just grow with smaller sequoias or yeah. pines? Yeah, zelkovas. <laughs> Conifers of some sort. Yeah. Well, the media is like a train. You know I mean? It used to be a train was a glamorous, gleaming thing that wasn't up. Now a train is a filthy vessel <laughs> you get in when you can't... It raises a question completely outside show business, but when I was a kid, I marveled that Japan had a 200-mile-an-hour, the Shinkansen bullet train, and we still have the Long Island Railroad, and I'm 50 years older. Yeah. It's a great country, though, isn't it? Otherwise. America. Yeah. It is, yes. You, um, you obviously have had your difficulties, no. and you've talked about it. No, no. You're looking over your shoulder like, no, that's somebody else. And I know for me, when I was getting divorced and I was in the, the real nadir of the whole experience, I, I felt mm -hmm. horrible. Mm -hmm. Everybody gets down. Everybody has the blues. Everybody suffers losses. You can not only have a bad game, you can have a bad season. Yeah. But then when do you decide that you need help from someone clinically? Since memory is affected by depression... There are details like that that you're not absolutely sure of, but I know the one time I knew was that when I boarded the Concorde and realized I'm not going to be this sick in another country and got off. Yeah. And I called my shrink, and he said, well, you can either get on the next plane or go to Columbia. And my staff was already over there. And I just thought, I can't go away feeling this horrible. A stewardess took one look at me and said, you want to get off? And I said, yeah. 
I mean, she saw whatever it was. It was that clear. Now, let me ask you this. Did you work during any of this? Were you able to work? I had to work, yeah. yeah. I had to work. And, and, and work somehow, helped me a bit. I, I can tell you a quickie that involves two people we've already named. I was at the Brando residence. You might have just left uh, one day. And I told him about taping a show with Olivier in the Wyndham Hotel for PBS. And I said, I was so depressed while doing it. And it's being Olivier made me realize how depressed I was because when I got to the hotel and they took me to a room and we were going to tape in the room up above, I thought, Laurence Olivier is one story above me and I don't give a damn. I just want to go home and get under the rug. And there are some cue cards. What do they say? Oh, I'll start it over again. How can they be so cruel to get me out of bed and to do this? And sitting there with the Olivier's, having read a prompter, a cue card introduction, the chat started. And I had some notes off camera. But I thought, this is awful. They're going to come over any moment and say, Dick, it's all right. We'll send them home or we'll send you home and uh, they're home. You know, we'll get them back on another day. This is obviously not a good day for you. The other thought rushing through my head was, they can see I am nuts. My brain is cracked. They can see it. I must be taking 20-second pauses from when they speak until I do. And I must be just hanging there with my head. I better raise my head a little. And Olivier is quite, quite smart enough in the psychology of performing and so on to know that he's got a dingbat on his hands. Yeah. And this is just... He's flying solo here. Yeah. His co-pilot's asleep I in the cabin. I hope Robin, my, yeah, my producer, will uh, come over and say it's all right. But I realized I had finished it. And I was telling Brando that, and... He said, I said, how awful it was. He said, did you ever see that show? And I said, oh, God, are you kidding? No. Do me a favor. Go home and look at it. It's half a year later. I longer. I was well then. So I went home and looked at it, and I was fine. Yeah. It's all that's going no on pauses. And I saw him again and reported that to him. I said, how did you know? What is that? I didn't have hesitations. I came right in. I looked interested, which I wasn't. My <laughs> eyes were sparkling, which I were no reason. And I looked like I was having the best time with the Olivier's anyone could have with anybody. He said, automatic pilot. Yeah. I've had to resort to it a lot. Yeah. Takes over. So had I stayed home that day and not taped the Olivier's, I would have stayed in bed and could not, if I'd been taped there, I wouldn't have looked good. But some part of us who are in the business, something won't let you, some crazy way, yeah. be a total mess while you're working. Well, there's two of us. Yeah, we have two sides, those two sides. I saw it with Judy Garland, yeah. who was, I think, on my show for her last television appearance, the 68 daytime show, 
ABC erased them all, used them to tape, well, let's make a deal. It might be, there's a, somebody has a bumpy home tape of that. She was so wonderful. You talk about these tapes, by the way, I want to get back to that. Oh, whenever yes. You, no, whenever somebody, you talk about these tapes, and you got the rights to the ABC There's several, several versions of what really happened. I just remember being told one day, Dick, they've... They're going to either reuse the tapes or erase them or dump them. And when and you I say that... What tapes? The ones to the ABC show. And you can have them, if you want to, for $60 each. And I thought, well, that's a ludicrous amount of money. Yeah. But, and a guy on my staff unfortunately, but he did it quite well, went through them and eliminated those he thought would never be of any interest again, and it turns out some of them would have been. But I have most all of them. Well, thank God he didn't rely on you for that choice, because you would have said to him, well, you can get rid of the Olivier, because I was zonked throughout yeah, that. Yeah, take the, throw out that well, one. Thank God I was fine for the first Olivier one. When you talk about those ABC tapes, I, I in my mind, visualize the guys throwing the sled on the fire, you know, and it burning. I uh, see these guys with boxes of tape. What are we supposed to do with these tapes, Charlie? Yeah. Somebody said, I don't know, the, the cabbage show. I mean, what the hell is that? Ray said, throw it in the fire. You're too realistic. Bum, bum, bum. God, the and losses. Goes, well, you know, the, the sons of bitches tapes. erased most of Johnny Carson's New York shows, years of them, a number of which I was on. Love to see them. What's your relationship to television now? Is there any of it you watch? Is there anything you like? Is there? I'm rapidly where do you get your news from? So I don't associate television with entertainment very much. Yeah. Um, and no this TV is a viewing total, now. Total, total, 360 degrees. Uh, when we got television in Nebraska, that's, I watched it every evening. I could tell you now. CBS, NBC, and ABC schedules for every night of the week back then. I watched everything, and a lot of it was good. I wasn't just watching crap. I watched Studio One. I watched Robert Montgomery, Philco Theater, The Web, um, and, of course, Gleason and uh, all the variety shows. The Sammy comics. Spear and his orchestra! <laughs> Les Brown and his band of renown. And now here's the star of our show, Bob Hope. And I get goose pimples even now. You can read Dick Cavett's blog, a word he admits he had to look up before he started writing one, on the New York Times website. Here's the Thing is produced by Emily Botine and Kathy Russo, with support from Jim Briggs, Wendy Dore, Ed Herbstman, Melanie Hoops, and Monica Hopkins. Thanks to Trey Kay, Lou Olkowski, and Larry Josephson and the Radio Foundation. I'm Alec Baldwin. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. 
With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Managing your diabetes just got easier. The powerful new Dexcom G7 lets you see your glucose numbers on your compatible watch and phone without finger sticks. And because Dexcom G7 is the most accurate CGM system, you can be confident in your food, exercise, and medication decisions. And all those decisions can lead to big results like more time and range and lower A1C. Get started at Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. <sighs> Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Thursday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. 